Good evening, everybody. Um, let's turn to the book of First Peter, chapter five, verse five. So, First Peter, chapter five, verse five, and I'll just read it for us. First Peter chapter 5, verse 5. Why don't we all rise for the reading of God's word? Now hear the word of the Lord. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to the elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I was thinking... A lot these days, and I think one of the more important phrases that have come up for me has been the phrase, in order to. In order to. So why do we fast? So I want to finish that phrase, I fast in order to feast. And I think it's important for me, I've realized, to find that out about everything that I do. So I fast in order to feast. And you have the cards that were given out in the back of the sanctuary. We don't want you to just fast for fasting's sake, but we also want you to feast on something. I pray in order to, and in light of this past Sunday's message, I would answer that. I pray in order to connect with God, to connect to the source. I serve In order to. Now this is a very important question because if I do not know how to finish the in order to sentence, I will be burned out. I will become tired. I will become complacent, bitter, and I will wonder why I am doing anything. And especially for those who have been serving tirelessly in a thankless job such as maybe... um, you know, cleaning up the stage after service, doing the PowerPoint when no one sees it. Even a lot of times, being a deacon is a thankless job. I need to know the answer. I serve in order to build the church, to raise disciples. I serve in order to build Jesus' church, to raise his disciples. Today marks Ash Wednesday, but it also marks the first part of our seven-part series, Killjoys. And I was talking with Hesu, and she was saying, Killjoys is kind of weird just to say Killjoys. But it stems from the seven deadly sins. For seven weeks, I wanted to study the seven deadly sins. And a lot of people think, oh, isn't that Catholic And I think it has morphed, and the Roman Catholics took it. But way before um, even the Reformation, the seven deadly sins were in circulation, uh, in writings, like Thomas Aquinas would also write about that. And instead of saying they're deadly sins, because all sin is deadly, uh, we want to talk about the seven killjoys. But it's a killjoy because... The seven deadly sins or the seven killjoys, 
I'll just name it for you now. It's pride, envy, anger, grief, sloth, gluttony, and lust. And this not just because they are lethal or most lethal. All sin is deadly. But it's because the reason why the church has so long talked about these seven particular sins is because they represent the rest. The churches believe that these seven sins were sources of a host of species of sins. So they're root level sins from which other sins often spring. So instead of calling it seven deadly sins, we're just going to call it seven killjoys. Things that kill our joy. Why? Because at its essence, sin is the declaration that something other than God is more desirable than God. Sin as it, at its essence is the declaration that something other than God is more desirable than God. I talked about Aquinas, but the reformers rejected Aquinas' distinction of saying this is our seven deadly root sins, but the Reformation's emphasis on sola scriptura and the fast that the seven capital sins, because it was nowhere listed in the Bible, we, they were, there was a lot of discussion. And so now in our Reformed Protestant circles, there are more other, there are other ethical approaches into diagnosing sin. For example, Colossians 3, 1 to 17, if you're interested, we would focus on that. But surprisingly, contemporary Protestants, that means we, our church today, we make more mention in our churches across the world than any of our forebearers. So something is coming up. You know, people are talking about, is Lent even legitimate? Isn't it Roman Catholic? And every Lent or Ash Wednesday, someone always posts something about how Lent isn't biblical. And uh, but we've been doing it. Our, the Korean church has been doing it from the beginning of the Korean church. And Protestants do it as well as the Roman Catholics. It is not Roman Catholic. I have to say this. Um, it, 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 first, we have evidence that it started at least by um, the Nicene era. So the, when the Nicene Council came together, they said, this is 40 days we're going to do it. But fasting before Easter itself has been done ever since Christianity was birthed. People have been fasting ever since Christ was lifted up before Easter to prepare themselves for Easter. And one more interesting church history fact, if you're interested, is because I don't want us to go away thinking, oh, maybe Lent isn't biblical, and then it's like, why are we doing this? And then I get all confused because there's so many mixed messages. So I just want to give you some church history. Even before the Nicene era, even before, well, right after the, uh, Jesus' ascension, we see people fasting, not, not specifically 40 days, but fasting in various uh, amounts, days. Some, some people did one day, two days, three days. Some people did 40 hours. And eventually, by the time it came to where the Nicene Council met, they said, you know what, let's just make it 40 days before Easter. And so, ever since then, this is fascinating. 
When, ha- when does the church, I'm talking about not just pilgrim church, when does the church, the invisible church, the, in- the church of the entire world, the Catholic church, right, the universal church, when do we ever pray at the same time? When do we ever fast at the same time? And yet this tradition, as many would try to put that label on, saying it's like a bad thing, this tradition has been going on, and every year the whole world, Christians around the whole world, get together to fast and pray. Please tell me how that's a bad thing. I can make anything into a bad thing, to be honest with you. I can make singing a song a bad thing if I wanted to. I can make that into an idol. Anything, I've preached this before, but anything can be made into an idol. But to say something is inherently, inherently bad or good or has some kind of, you know, value, moral value is kind of weird to me. So if you are fasting, that can be good or bad, depending on you. Depending on how you are taking the fast. And if you are not fasting, that could be good or bad, depending on you. It doesn't have an intrinsic value by itself. In fact, you can say you're fasting all the time, but if you don't help the poor, help the needy, in Isaiah 58, God is speaking against those people. Do you think just because you're not eating that I will accept your fast? Isn't this the fast that I have chosen to loosen the chains of injustice? To help the poor. And that's why we fast, to become more like Jesus. I fast in order to become more like Jesus, in, in order to become closer to Jesus. But going back to the seven killjoys, what we are really saying, and how this is all tied together is, is because a lot of things are tied together. Even the early church, way before uh, when the apostles were even there and Paul was doing his ministry, people would fast before Easter. Easter was when everybody wanted to baptize. In fact, in our church, we baptize around Easter. So people would fast before they get baptized in order to consecrate themselves. And as they fasted, the, not only the people that were getting baptized were fasting, but the church that was accepting them into the community, they would also fast with them. Hello, this is all connected. So anybody bashing on one thing, I would say be careful because they're all connected. History has a way of just opening maybe, hopefully this opened some people's eyes, but I'm sure none of you are really bashing the Lent. That's why you're here, obviously. But (laughs) I think we're being faced with so many voices, so we don't know what to think. So here's some history for you. I'm sure... Some of you were like, oh, I didn't need that, and I would have done it anyway. But it's, it's kind of an exciting time. Because when we fast, we're saying we're going to consecrate ourselves. We're not going to do certain things. And one of the things that we have to say is we are not going to sin. We're going to focus hard. We're going to do this. So diagnosing the root of sinful behavior entails identifying what we think, foolishly, but what we think will make us more happy than Christ. So if you really want to diagnose our sinful behavior and you want to come into this Lenten season, you want to start it with the right attitude, we have to really identify what we foolishly, mistakenly believe is going to give us more joy than Christ. What is it in our lives that really does this? 
Because our only hope with any sin, our only hope is to turn to God and say, search me. Search me, O God, and know my thoughts. And if there is any sinful or grievous way in me, lead me in the way everlasting. That should be our cry. That should be the heart and attitude of the Christian that is entering this Lenten season. John Owen says this, but he says, Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Sin is something that we are fighting against. It is a war. And if you are not winning, that means you are losing. And today we're going to talk about the first sin that I mentioned, pride. The first killjoy, pride. Pride, many can say, and many do say, is the essence of all other sins, of all, even all other six. Because pride is a cosmic crime. This past Sunday, many of us maybe watched the Super Bowl. I heard, I heard some people say it was mediocre, it wasn't that great, or it wasn't that exciting. But the talk of the Super Bowl, interestingly enough, wasn't about the Broncos' win as much as it was about Cam, Lute, Cam Newton's loss. This was a man who always did a dance called dabbing. Anyway, he, he, he used to dance and he used to make a show, blow kisses to his mother before the game, be very excited and pumped, but somehow he lost it, and he lost his composure in many ways. And a lot of people are saying because of his attitude, he lost many fans. I don't know if that's entirely true. I'm sure he still has many fans, but a lot of people also say it's because he was a sore loser. There was pride so that he couldn't take it. But pride in the sense for our study, what makes pride so singularly repulsive is that it contends, it fights for supremacy with God himself. So you can have pride thinking, I was a way better quarterback than Manning. And I lost. That's ridiculous. I'm not going to celebrate his win because I'm celebrating my loss. Who in their right mind would do that and not give them the proper, you know, adulation? But what makes pride so singularly repulsive in ourselves is that in the end it contends for supremacy with God. Pride sets yourself against God. And that's why it says not only in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5 that we read today, but in James 4, 6, it says that God opposes the proud. We can even see it this way. All these other sins push us away from God, right? Lust, greed, gluttony, all these other sins, they push us away from God. But pride, interesting enough, pride puts us above God. Jonathan Edwards said this of pride he said it is the most hidden secret and deceitful of all sins and when i read this i thought of mystique in x-men honestly i think she if you if you don't know she's a a character in the movie x-men if you've never seen it 
I'm sorry, but this is an example from that. Mystique is a shapeshifter. And a lot of times pride is also like a shapeshifter. I honestly think Mystique is probably one of the most effective, most influential, but most dangerous villains in the comic books because she can imitate anybody, their voice and their look, and then she infiltrates anything. But pride is like that. It's a shapeshifter. A lot of times pride can come out in this form. It can come out in the form of building up. And pride comes up as self-exaltation. I need to lift myself up. I'm so good. I'm so awesome. Self-promotion. Look at what I did. Self-justification. Look, you guys. You know. All the things that I'm about to do is going to be great. Don't worry about it. And then I justify myself. But it can also come on the other side. Not just building up, but tearing down. Self-degradation. I'm nothing. I'm just, I'm a dirty old rag. Right, you quote Isaiah. Self-demotion, we continue to lower ourselves. And self-condemnation, we, we, just, we just condemn ourselves. The first three show up when we succeed and others fail. Self-exaltation, self-promotion, self-justification. They show up when we succeed and others fail. But the latter, the tearing down, self-degradation, self-demotion, and self-condemnation... They show up where others succeed, and we don't. You know, there is a group in the Bible that also Jesus would condemn as people full of pride. The Pharisees trusted their own righteousness while treating everybody else with contempt. Rather than throwing a toast to successes, we see that the the latter three Self-degradation, self-demotion, self-condemnation, it uh, throws a party, but it's not just a party. It's a pity party, and it's pretty lavish. The common denominator of pride is that we want attention, not just any attention. We want to be the center of attention, whether good as the building up part or bad. Oh, I'm nothing. I'm terrible. Don't use me. I have no talent. But in the end, what happens is we try to put everything, me, center of attention. There's a, there's a saying about a clever salesman who closed hundreds of sales with one line. So he closed hundreds of sales with this one line. And he said, let me show you something several of your neighbors said you couldn't afford. Pride is deceitful. It is many times elusive. And we must be on guard. The founder of our Reformation, Martin Luther, he would write many times he had... Um, contact and bouts with Satan. And if you read some of his stuff, some of, them, some of the stuff are just extraordinary. Some of them are so extraordinary, a lot of people don't believe it even. But there is one story I will never forget, and it's, uh, he really liked to sleep, by the way. So he's like, God created night so we sleep. So if you bugged him while he slept, he got really upset. 
And I really resonated with that. If you bug me while I sleep, I get so, so upset a little bit. But while he was asleep, an angel came, and there was a brilliant light. So brilliant. It shone so brightly. And then he turned around from his bed. He looked at the angel and said, get away from me, Satan. And he turned around and he went back to sleep. So that's the story. I never, I'll never forget it. It's because we always think Satan comes out in this dark, mystical form, whether red or black. He has this, uh, you know, either two colors. It's either red or black, right? But here we see that Satan was actually Lucifer. And when God created Lucifer, he was a brilliant angel. And he was so beautiful, God created him perfectly. And yet, this is what Satan said. He said, in Isaiah 14, he goes, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, which means the angels of God. He will be above the angels of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation. On the farthest sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds And I will be like the Most High. And when he thought that, God threw him away from, threw him out of heaven, and he descended. God opposes pride actively and hates it passionately, which means that if you are just raising and maturing pride in your life, that is committing spiritual suicide. Jason Meyer says this, the glory of God, the glory of God and the pride of man will collide at one of two crash sites, hell or the cross. In other words, if we pay for our sins, in other words, we will pay for our sins in hell or Christ will pay for our sins on the cross. I, I imagine God as this incredible incredible force and god is moving we know this and if you have pride you are trying to set yourself against this force that's why when it says the bible says god opposes the proud is because the proud is opposing god they're like no i will stop you and you set yourself against god because you want to be above god you're like no 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 i really want to help i want to be good and so That's why I'm saying pride can be so deceitful. It can be so elusive to so many. And yet, this is one of the biggest sins that God hates. That's a scary thought. How can we set up ourselves so that we are not against God, but we are with God, for God? What is the photo negative of pride? If pride puts us in a position that is opposition to God, then humility delights in taking a posture that is dependent on God. This means that we have a posture dependent to receive grace, and grace from God. And how do we continue in this posture? That's why we fast, you guys. That's why we pray. This is not just something that we say just because this is a church, but this is a constant battle that we must realize that we are fighting. And that is why we fast. 
Some, someone asked me before, why do we particularly fast now? What's the importance of fasting? Or at any time, why do we fast? And instead of explaining the whole biblical um, foundations around fasting, I, told, I said a story. Since you're a student, fasting is like crunch time during exams. You know the exam's coming. It's going to come in like three weeks. And while you study throughout the whole semester, it's crunch time. That means you really have to buckle down and study and give it your all during this time. That's fasting. It's exam time. We know that there is something coming up ahead and we must be prepared. So we buckle down. We sit down on our desks we open our textbooks, and until we understand it, we don't get up. Because once you get up, and you think you're okay, but you don't understand the material, once exam time comes, you will fail. And if you took it that seriously, you would see that fasting is a very serious business as well. Look at our church. Look at what we're trying to do. Look at the position that we are in. How can you say we do not need to fast? There's a great um, hymn that we sang on Sunday. But in one of the verses, it says this. On that day, when free from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. Full arrayed in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Bring thy promises to pass. For I know thy power will lead me till I'm home with thee at last. We continue to fight against pride and we continue to fight against sin because in order to be with God, that is my ultimate prize. That is why, that's why it's worth fighting, you guys. That's why when I get tired, I think and I remember the prize that is ahead of me and I continue to run. I know that there is a finish line and I look toward the finish line and I run. If you've ever tried running without a finish line, it can be very, very tiring. It can feel hopeless. But if you see the finish line, then it brings you energy and hope. What is our finish line as Christians? It is to be with God. Before we end and we do the ashes, I wanted to share this one story that Dave McPherson said on pride and why it's so dangerous. We think pride is just an individual thing, but I'm here to say that it is not. If you suffer with pride, then it affects everyone around you as well. The U.S. Air Force transport plane, and he's telling this story from his friend, with its captain and five crew members that plane was flying over Alaska in the mid-1950s when they entered into an unusually fierce snowstorm. The navigator 
of that plane contacted an airbase, only to be told that he had veered off course several, several hundred miles. Correct coordinates were given to the navigator who continued to insist that his own calculations could not be that far off. Soon the plane ran low on fuel. The six men decided to abandon the plane and parachute to safety. But because of the minus 70 degree Fahrenheit temperature and winds that gusted to 50 miles per hour, they were all frozen within minutes of hitting the ground. A friend of mine, says Dave McPherson, was part of the rescue team that discovered and retrieved the bodies three days later. As a result of the navigator's pride, five people, five other people went to their deaths. Proverbs 12.15 tells us that the way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. The results might, may not always be so dramatic, but we must always be careful and seek the counsel of God and also other wise individuals before making decisions of lasting significance. That's why we take time, we pray, we fast, we continue to talk to each other about every major church decision. Ultimately, pride is a worship issue. We cannot think about ourselves less unless we think about something else more. And who is it that, or what is it that we must look to? God. God is the only God. He has opponents, but no rivals. He is the only one who was and is and is to come. He alone is worthy of all our worship and praise. God is God, and we are not. And as we recognize this, we give him worship, saying, God, you are God, and I am not. Lead me, search me, lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me so that I can be with you. There's a prayer that uh, you should have received on your way in, and I wanted to pray this as we close out this portion of the sermon. And if you don't have a piece, the piece of paper, it's going to be put up on the screen. But if you need the piece of paper, could you raise your hand? And then we'll have someone bring it to you. Okay, so we have two, in, four in the front and a few in the back. Could we get the pieces of paper for them? This is a prayer uh, that was written specifically for Ash Wednesday by a man named Scotty Smith. And I recommend his book, Everyday Prayers. Such a great book. Uh, But let's read this prayer together as we... go into this Lenten season. Does everybody have one now? Okay. Let's read the prayer together. Dear Heavenly Father, on this Ash Wednesday, accepting my mortality and acknowledging my need has never been easier, more life-giving and freeing. For you resist the proud and give grace to the humble. And I relish and want all the grace you freely give us in Jesus. I gladly humble myself. 
today. It was according to your unfailing love and great compassion that you completely blotted out my transgressions. For I have no other appeal or hope. Now I trust only and fully in the finished work of Jesus for the washing and cleansing from all my sins. I have peace with you only because Jesus took the punishment I deserve. Father, during the entire season of Lent, intensify my awe of Jesus' cross that I might genuinely repent of the ways I continue to underbelieve the gospel, run to broken cisterns, and love poorly. It's only because of my standing in Christ that I can fall on my face before you, deeply convicted of my sin, but without the burden of my guilt. It's only because you've declared me righteous in your sight that I declare myself needful of your grace to change me, heal me, and free me. It's only because I'm certain you'll complete the work you began in us that I'll gladly submit to, to the present work of your spirit in me. Oh, for the day when we'll be as lovely and as loving as Jesus. Hasten that day, Lord. Hasten that day. Until then, make me more humble, grateful, and generous. So very amen. I pray in Jesus' trustworthy and worship-worthy name. Amen. Let's take this time to pray. And let's pray offering up our confession of our sinful nature before the Lord. Let's admit to him that we are not worthy, that we are not God, but that many times we put ourselves above God. We do not want to set ourselves against God, but we want to be with him. So in all the ways that the Spirit would convict you, I ask that you would pray to him and ask him, to change your heart. Renew your spirit and to give you new life. Let's pray. Lord, we want to offer up our lives to you and we ask God that we would be humble before you, especially during this season. Teach us what it means to be humble, what it means to follow and take up the cross to be like Jesus. I pray, God, that you would show us that being humble and following Jesus is true joy and that pride is not joyful it would not lead us into joy in fact it is a lie that the devil spreads and that we want to go against any lie or deceit and we want to take up the good things that you offer us help us to be a joyful church by being a humble church give us joy and humility in our own personal lives as well that we would not be people that would try to place ourselves above anything, but rather we would be like you said, 
the least of these. For it is you that lifts up. For it's you that gives grace to the humble. So be with your people. Do not let us go. Help us to stop being deceived. But Lord, God, help us to run to you, run into the truth, run into the light, run to Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.